Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan with Peter Evers as it is Thanksgiving time 2020. And on this edition of the podcast, we're going to focus on that and also on PIN. And we'll talk to you about what that acronym means with a really intriguing individual who works here in our organization by the name of Heather Hogan. But we'll start by welcoming in our president and CEO, Peter Evers. Peter, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you doing? Good. Appreciate joining us for the program. And you know, this year we are you know, rethinking Thanksgiving and how Thanksgiving is going to uh, take place. Um, and if we're not rethinking Thanksgiving, perhaps we should be rethinking <laughs> Thanksgiving and how it should be uh, taking place. And as I've said before, I think you know, it's obviously – always challenging to have to sacrifice and um, you know to lose out on one of those really pinnacle moments for your family when you're unable to get together for Thanksgiving but uh, in my view it's it's so important to do it this year I've made that decision in regards to you know my dad um, who is uh, in you know high risk category um, I've barely seen him over the last uh, nine months and as a result of that, um, it's been tough. Uh, there's no question about that. But you know, we need to be mindful of making sure that we're making, you know, the best choices during this uh, environment. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's such a difficult thing. You know, it's funny because I often think about as Thanksgiving as my favorite ho- holiday in in the United States. It's the least commercial. It is when. Uh, folks get together, get around the table. Obviously, it has some cultural nuance. And the English are kind of the good guys. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Up to a point. <laughs> Up to a point. I think that's a little hairy. As I was actually going to say, I, I think it held, holds some cultural demons for some people as well. Certainly. Uh, so we have to sort of recognize that. But overall, I think you know people really enjoy Turkey Day, as they call it in some uh, communities, because it is pure family getting together and spending time with each other and essentially making memories you know, for the year to come and looking back on previous things. Thanksgivings, who was there, who was the member of the family who would trot out the old sayings that have become famous within the family. Those are things, the fabric of the fabric of the the loved ones you spend time with, which makes it so much more difficult. And this is the first of a a couple of holidays coming up when we have to think about Thanksgiving in a different way. And we have to think about denying ourselves that pleasure, which is probably one of the greatest human pleasures, uh, spending time in the same room, in the same house with the ones that you love the most. And it's a very difficult time. But it's very necessary to think about what the CDC is saying, what our local boards of health are saying. Because if you think about it, they talked about a second wave, Chris, and we're right in the middle of a second wave, as predicted. And we know that there are lagging indicators of health issues to come, and we have to pay attention to it. Yeah, and I think that um, you know this circumstance is going to be much more challenging than you know, the previous one as well. But to, with those challenges, you know, we have to rise to them. And for some reason, when you mentioned um, families and traditions and experiences, I thought of the Geico commercial with the the ant problem. <laughs> and so, for some reason, Thanksgiving in that one, uh, I just. Uh, it, just imagining an ant at the refrigerator. Expired. 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 It's a expired. big house. It's a big house. Hope you can keep it clean. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot of house. Yeah, I don't know. For some reason, that kind of popped into my um, head when you're talking about that. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it is very challenging for people because this is a time period, particularly when you. Um, I remember as as a kid, uh, it was so fun because this is the time you got to see your cousins and you like played the day out in your head before it took place and 
Yeah, it was it was a special time period, and that's also the case for seniors. Um, you know, this is a chance for you know they. A parent is always in a tough spot because you want to know what's going on in your kids' lives. You don't want to be too intrusive. And here's a chance for everybody to to get together, and you know you're going to get together. And uh, you don't want to be the you know the dad or the grandfather that's constantly pushing the kids. Hey, why don't we do something this weekend? Why don't we do? Something? How about this weekend? How about this weekend? You know that this is the weekend that you get to. Uh, or, or day when you get to spend some time uh, together, and um, you know that is not the case you know, this year for a, a lot of families. And you know, to me, I I think that it's about trying to be creative. And how are you going to bring people in? How are you going to do things? Um, you know, virtually this year, you know, instead of you know, making the pumpkin pie together with your mom, you make the pumpkin pie together with her on the Zoom, and you make in your own pie, and then and you kind of talk that way. Is it optimal? It is not. Is it the best thing to do in the circumstance? It is. And or figuring out a way to um, to meet with as many of your different your family members on that day. Do it outside. Exchange a um, a dish uh, and. You know, have a, a Thanksgiving that comes together where you have eight different people that make eight different dishes and you all kind of throughout the course of the morning schedule a half hour where you stop and um, drop the dish off, spread out, wear your masks and talk. So try to figure out a, a an exciting way in order to embrace the challenge. Yeah. And remember that these will be the stories that you tell your grandchildren around uh, yep. the year 2020, which really, I've got to say, is not my favorite year. It no, hasn't even think, ended yet. I don't think it's anyone's favorite year. year. But those are the things that we have to do. We have to get creative. We have to show each other, you know, that we love each other in, in, in other ways. It was funny. I was listening. I was reading something about some um, uh, grandfather who had a special um, potato salad um, recipe and decided to mail it um, because he couldn't be there. And, of course, that has its... <laughs> own difficulties around botulism and that kind of thing. So, yeah, be creative, but don't put yourselves at risk. But I think, you know, I think these events, there's no question. That these, Avoid botulism. Yes. At yes. all costs. If you possibly can. Yeah. Probably good. Yeah. But these events are super spreader events. And it is, as somebody said last week, it is the, uh, it's the people who, have, uh, who are asymptomatic uh, who are the spreaders? Because we just don't know. So when you're not, when you don't know, you practice universal precautions, and that's what we should be doing. And we'll be around next year to tell the tale. Right, and um, I think it's, I think it is obviously a challenge, but it is one that we have to embrace because we don't want to have Thanksgiving be that time period where we remember um, it for all the wrong reasons, and. Um, to me, I'll just point to remember that wedding in Maine um, right. and how that became a multi-casualty event, <laughs> and that is not what you want your Thanksgiving to be. I do wonder, though, how many people are going to actually um, move forward with a – not necessarily a traditional Thanksgiving, but just make some modifications where instead of having 25 or 50 people, they're going to have 10. And – you know, again, um, it's not it, it's not the you know it's debatable what the role is of individuals in telling people what to do, etc. But you know, you would hope that individuals would have some common sense. There's obviously rules that have been put in place. We know what gatherings bring uh, together, and we know that gatherings inside are, as you mentioned, super spreader events, and um, the guilt and the weight of 
having something go wrong and as a result of your Thanksgiving celebration to me is just horrific to think about. Yeah, and I think, you know, an American tradition is freedom. There's no doubt about that. I feel that every day that I'm in this country. But I also recognize that with that freedom comes some responsibilities. And when it comes to public health, there are responsibilities that we have and that we have to pay attention to, which is for the good of the group. And this is definitely about the good of the herd. And we have to make sure that we protect everybody. You mentioned earlier, you know, the role that um, the English played in this and the fact that they are the the pilgrims um, came across the uh, sea in 1620, 400 years ago and uh, established themselves in uh, Plymouth after, you know, initially going to the Cape and not really liking the uh, the soil out there and headed across the uh, the pond, if you will, to um, Plymouth. And, you know, it also this time period brings you back to some of the great um, you know, debates about our history as well. And what's uh, – because we are very fractured now, but we've always been fractured to a large degree. Uh, I think social media has brought a lot of these arguments to you know, the forefront. But one of the, you know, the great debates has always been um, the way that uh, uh, our ancestors coming from Europe um, treated the Native Americans – and, you know, what was their rights, what were not their rights, uh, what actually took place at Thanksgiving, what didn't take place at Thanksgiving. Is Thanksgiving really a thing? Is it not a thing? And there's been a lot of, um, you know, history around that. And, you know, the history, is, as I understand it, is that there was a three-day uh, festival which took place. Um, and, you know, there was not much turkey, uh, but there was a <laughs> lot of, of deer and there was a gathering of um, – the Native Americans and the uh, the pilgrims, and you know that to me is the history as it's been represented. It's the history as it was written by William Bradford yeah. uh, in Bradford's Bradford. of Plymouth Plantation. Yeah. So, do we know if that was in fact the case? I mean, a lot of history is based upon you know what um, that we wish to believe as written by the quote unquote victors in those circumstances, and. I think that there is no question that Native Americans have been treated horrifically um, through the course of our history. Um, We made many trade agreements and deals uh, with Native Americans uh, that we um, did not keep up our end of the bargain on and continuously um, treated Native Americans extremely poorly. And I think that that history is worth noting. But in discussing the actual first Thanksgiving, um, it, to me, it, it, it does indicate to me that it's a it was a time period in which individuals were able to to come together for um, the greater good, that Native Americans did help um, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the these, these pilgrims and vice versa. And there is a important message in that. And so we tend to try to drown that out with the atrocities that were committed Afterwards, or even beforehand, by other, um, you know, whether it's Columbus or other explorers. Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, the nature of that event is a very important one to uh, to celebrate, and for that history to um, be uh, be discussed as as it as it is understood. Yeah, I mean, it is uh, two cultures coming together and breaking bread, if you like. Um, and what happened after that is a little shocking when you think about it, especially when you think about the. The story of the pilgrims is always that they were 
they were cast out um, by their own country, which I would take issue with. I think that their views religiously were so extreme that it was very difficult to contain them, and they were asked to leave. Slightly different nuance there. Uh, yet there are people who who uh, consider themselves per- persecuted by a government, come to another country, and then persecute another group of people. I, I suppose it's forever thus. But, uh, but that you're right. That moment was a moment of understanding that we should hang on to, I, I think. Well said, Peter. Now I'm going to hand it back over to you for uh, you to introduce uh, today's guest. So welcome, uh, Heather, to our podcast. Heather Hogan is joining us for the show, which is great. Heather is our program director of our PIN program. And we're going to talk today a little bit about the program and a little bit about Heather, if she's, if she's up for talking about that and her journey uh, into um, the position that she's in now. Uh, but I'd also like to talk about the importance of uh, lived experience in the, the workplace uh, in human services, specifically, I would say, within behavioral health. It's something that I've had quite a lot of experience uh, of doing. And in some ways, you know, Heather really sort of speaks that language. Um, so, Heather, welcome uh, to a uh, rainy Monday morning um, just before Thanksgiving. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So, so if you don't mind, um, can we start um, by a little bit of an introduction to PIN? Because PIN is such an important program for the parents uh, in the southeast uh, of Massachusetts. And it's an important program in terms of where it sits within BAMSI. But we're a big organization. There's a couple of thousand of us. So here's an opportunity, Heather, to, to tell us a little bit about the uh, Parent Information Network. Well, the Parent Information Network um, is really uh, an amazing resource for families that have children uh, with mental health needs in Southeast Massachusetts. Um, We are an organization that's been in business for about 25 years, and we do all kinds of things um, to support families going through the journey of having a child with a mental health issue. We... Um, help support one-on-one. Um, sometimes a phone call is all a family needs uh, to just keep them going in the right direction. We help families navigate systems like DMH, the Department of Mental Health, um, Mass Health, and school systems with special education. We offer support groups where parents can get together with other parents kind of on the same journey and work together to kind of problem solve and and have the opportunity to talk to other people going through the same thing. There's so much value in just other people listening. Um, we also have family events that we do. Uh, we will have um, a family holiday party or in May, we celebrate Children's Mental Health Month for the entire month, offering trainings and uh, social events and a Mother's Day breakfast. In June, we do a Father's Day breakfast. We have support groups also for dads, couples. Um, we also provide an LGBTQ group. Uh, so we really try to meet the needs of the communities that we're working in and uh, our funder has allowed us to be very creative about the ways that we go about serving the communities and helping support them through their journey. Yeah, and I just want to give a 
shout out to Department of Mental Health who, you know, the, the, the children's money in Department of Mental Health has never been, you know, uh, there's never been a great deal of it, but the, uh, but the way in which they've allowed places like BAMSI and the PIN program to be flexible with those resources is just remarkable, I think. So shout out to Department of Mental Health. Um, but let's go back a minute because I think it's important to talk about this. I, I always think about um, when you're raising a child, it can be the loneliest job in the world, even under the best circumstances. You can be very isolated. Um, systems are difficult to negotiate. Um, even if your child does not necessarily have the disease of mental illness or, or um, you know, any other disability. But, you know, you, it, if you're around peg, you fit into a round hole, right? It's certainly the same in the medical uh, profession as well uh, in terms of getting your children to see the doc. Now, add in then a mental illness um, or a uh, serious emotional disturbance and the stigma that comes along with that, it can become much more lonely as well. And you just, you touched a little bit on the help negotiating the system piece. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, especially within school systems, because, and I'm not, I'm not into con- to sort of criticizing school districts here, but sometimes a child, a child with special needs, it's incredibly difficult to get the support and the help that you need. Uh, it is incredibly difficult. And of course, um, social emotional is the hardest disability to help support in a school system because there's no certain test. And so it's about symptoms and it's about behaviors. And that often, you know, kind of falls back on the parents. So it is incredibly isolating for parents um, because I think parents know their kids best. And uh, especially with mental health, that's very true. And it takes being validated in that to have the courage to navigate the system because the, you know, oftentimes parents come and they, and they say, you know, everyone told us nothing was wrong with our kiddo, the pediatrician school, and the parent knew all along. And it, you know, Penn is here to help parents find their voice and validation and also to educate them on the systems. You know, in Massachusetts, you know, we have CBHI services um, and DMH services available to families, but also there's a lot of things within schools and the community that they can access before they get to the point where they would need a higher level of service. And so PIN is about educating families and helping meet the needs of where they are right now. And, you know, we, we very much work individually one-on-one with each family, and we help them exactly where they are in their journey right now. So when they call, we hear their story, and we pick up, and we get moving with the resources that we know we have. One of the other things that we offer is an incredible website that has amazing resources and we connect families with that we also do a newsletter and so we really try to outreach to families mostly by word of mouth because um, other families will tell each other you know you have to call pin to to get that support and so once they get on board whatever their needs are we make sure that we find a service that will help support them 
want to ask you a little bit about the social and uh, emotional learning piece. And do you feel that there is more and more of a need has come about, say, in the last um, you know, 10 to 20 years and there's more children that are dealing with social and emotional learning issues? Or has there been a greater amount of identification of that um, because of the parents being uh, cognizant of these these types of things. Is there a greater need in your view now uh, than there has been in the past, or is it just the identification of these are things that we um, you know, need to address as parents, as a, as a society, as a school? Um, so I think that's a terrific question. Uh, definitely I'm answering as a parent. Um, and I would say that I think it's both. You know, I think that over the past um, 20 years, our family structures have changed and it's uh, allowed more parents to be out at work while kids are at school. Uh, I think the pressures of school have increased with there being competitive college um, things that are going on for kids. And I think that that trickles down very early. You know, parents want their kids to be competitive. Um, They want them to be well-rounded. And so I think that, that we're, as a society, kind of moving in the direction of, we, you know, shaping our children to meet, you know, a need at a college level very early. And uh, I also think that there's more identification. I know that when I had my son, um, he well, was 24 yesterday, um, there wasn't the knowledge and information that's available today. And there wasn't the support. Uh, it took a lot to advocate and, and be strong and courageous about my voice because everyone told me he was fine. And he wasn't, and I knew he wasn't. And so I think parents are getting more courage as, as we kind of collectively gather, and that is helping create more movement in in support for um, getting more identification available for families. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an incredibly well-rounded answer, Heather, that comes from years and years of experience. And, you know, I think, I think it's a great question, but I'm interested in, you know, you're a trailblazer here. You're somebody who sort of stood up and, and wanted to be counted. And I think the biggest thing about PIN is it's that paying it forward, isn't it? It's that whole idea of having um, people who have lived through difficulties who can sort of lock arms with people who are just facing this and saying, you know, we've cut this path before. We have fought these forts, these fights before, and this is how you do it. I don't think you had that when you started doing this. No, I I didn't have that. And and it made my journey, you know, really difficult in the beginning because I I had so much self-doubt. And I am a person who trusts other people. And so I often uh, let other people's opinions into my head, like, you know, and that... And that caused a great um, amount of time for my son to not have services. And it was very um, depleting as a parent. And so I think 
what I can say for every parent as, as I went through my journey and as I support other parents is trust your voice. If you think that there's an issue, don't stop moving towards it until you have an answer and an answer you're comfortable with. Because as parents, we are our children's best advocates, and sometimes you're the only voice speaking for your child, and it can be lonely, but you have to be empowered by uh, the thought that you know your child best. I think you're making a number of really good points, and I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper on you know, parenting and our role as, as parents. And, you know, are we putting, you know, too much pressure on our kids to do well in school, to do well in, in sports? Um, and, you know, are we allowing for some of the down-the-road questions in regards to college and affordability of college and things of, of that nature to creep into, you know, the very early aspects of our kids' lives? I want to approach this from a you know, athletics perspective. Um, because we see an incredible amount of specialization taking place in in sports, and you know, kids playing sports, individual sports year round, and focusing on that, and training as if they are you know professionals for those sports. And this is not something new; it's happened in gymnastics and figure skating for many, many years. Um, but we're seeing it kind of across the the board now. And I have two sons that play uh, uh, baseball. Um, both enjoy baseball. Uh, I see it with softball um, and pretty much every other sport where there is this year-round focus on training basically as a professional. And you know, I'm fortunate to cover all the uh, four Boston major sports teams and see how that works. And there's a lot of things that are very much the same in terms of the structure of, on, around training for a professional athlete and training an 8- to 10-year-old. And, um, you know, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on, you know, that type of, um, you know, pressure that we're placing on kids, because very often you'll see, you know, kids that uh, are, have this type of a speci- specificity of focus on a particular sport, they will, you know, melt down when things don't go their way. They will uh, become emotional in one way, you know, or the other, and that lack of the ultimate success, because that is what they're training for. Um, it can create some some difficulties for those kids. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I have three children, and um, two of my younger children are in have been in competitive sports since they were five. But I used it as an outlet for good health rather than the thought to compete. And it has been a very hard journey to keep that in mind because other families are constantly being competitive about it. Um, and it does have an impact on children. In fact, I, you know, I think that I've seen a lot of unkindness uh, with families and, and kids really hurt over things like this. And I've seen a negative impact on mental health. Um, with with a lot of children in situations where the competitiveness just overtook their lives. And I think the thing about parenting that we have to keep in mind always is balance. I think if your child's life is taken up by something so much 
that they don't have room for play or they don't have room for their studies, then it's not a healthy situation. And as parents, we really need to keep the balance for our children because kids can be really passionate and they can be talented in something. And the reality is, is that not all kids go on to get scholarships and play in a major league. There's very few that do, but they're going to have a lifetime of mental health. Mm-hmm. And it's so important that parents keep that in mind. At the, uh, the competitiveness has an impact on kids and it makes them not feel like they're successful if they're failing. And, and that's not, it, 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 in the early years, that's not the kind of focus that it should be. It should be about learning the game and loving the game, right. not about the time. And having fun. Fail. Yeah, and, yeah, and the development exactly. piece. Yeah, I, I want to get off this in a second, but it's a fascinating topic for me, and I know Peter wants to get back to the PIN <laughs> program. But um, here's, the, here's the, the two sides of that coin. One, I, I think that it is extremely important for kids to play a number of different sports to experience winning, losing, success, mm-hmm. and failure in order yeah. to um, figure out who they are. But I also know from my experience uh, around the, the major sports teams and you know, my friend Matt Bonner made it uh, from Concord, New Hampshire to the NBA um, against all odds. And how did he do it? He did it because he played basketball constantly mm-hmm. and was extremely aggressive and that was his singular <laughs> focus. So, um, you know, if your eight-year-old or 10-year-old has a lot of ability and they're telling you, hey, I want to be a professional baseball player and you know in order for that to take place, you have to take these steps it's a very difficult choice for a parent because you know the path and you know the route and yep. you want to try to do the the right thing um, for your kids. So it's, it gets to be a very difficult – and it's not just in sports. It's in you know competitive dancing. It's in a whole bunch of different realms. There's also a lot of um, – rather shady businesses out there which which profit off of par- yeah. telling parents and their kids you know that they're going to you know make they're it into the pros or that they're going to be able to get a scholarship you know and having some experience in that I can a lot of times you know go through the program and, and try to determine whether you know you're going to have success or not the fact of the matter is that it is a moonshot for any kid to yeah. make it into the pros so many things have to go right so you have to take that into account when you're making your decisions and you know, do what is best for your child in those circumstances i know that can be challenging peter yeah you know and i would uh, you know i would also say that uh, there's um there's a, sh- a podcast actually which is an english podcast and, and in england at the moment many of these professional sports people men and women are coming forward and saying this is the depression that i dealt with uh, as a result of being pushed too hard by coaches. And uh, the podcast, by the way, is called When the Lights Go Down. And it really explains um, yeah, but it's coaches, how but that is. The parents are behind that. Yeah, yeah. The parents are creating the environment where they want their kid to be pushed by the coach, and they're putting him in that program and watching the practices and saying this is what needs to take place. I think that kids need to practice. I think that they need to work hard. But I also think it's really, really important that they have fun. I don't like programs where the kids are getting yelled at mm-hmm. on a continual basis Wolf. by the coaches, in particular when um, you know they have not been taught how to do things correctly. 
and you know, we talk about it a lot of times in philosophy overall in life is that um, you know if you don't have a solution, don't you know get upset about the fact that uh, there is something that's taking place. And very often, coaching is yelling at people to do things that they haven't <laughs> told them to do to begin with. Um, we could go off on this. For, yeah. It's another entirely <laughs> you, you podcast. <laughs> you can probably tell we've talked about this before a couple of times, Heather. But you know, just to just to bring it back to that, I, I, my my point was that you know. Oftentimes, we just don't recognize mental illness because we're not encouraged to talk about it. And we have had many campaigns over the years, which is really throwing some sunlight on this disease as a disease and not a a choice or a weakness. And that's exactly what it is. And your program has just been doing that amazingly. And, you know, I wish that we had much more time to talk, uh, Heather, because your team, and I will say this when we do listening sessions, it is pretty much the norm that your staff say how wonderful and support supportive you have been and it's 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 uncanny i don't know whether you're paying them a lot of money to say that but i doubt it (laughs) (laughs) they genuinely feel supported through what has been one of the more difficult times in most people's lives over the last nine months seven months whatever it is and i just wanted to take a moment to to recognize that, and I know that you've been recognized by the Association for Behavioral Health this year as well uh, as one of their awardees, and uh, you know, it, it, it should have come much earlier. The work that you do is just extraordinary, uh, and I just, I just want to thank you for that, and, uh, and may this continue for many, many years. Oh, thank you so much for those kind words, and, and uh, you know, I think the, the key is, and uh, this is what I say to my kids too, um, treat everyone as you'd want to be treated and that's the recipe for success so thank you the final thing for me on this i just wanted to kind of build upon that and what the challenges have been in delivering services in this type of um environment and you know what you have noticed and how you feel um those services have been uh positive in, in how they've affected individuals well I think <laughs> it, this the, this pandemic has been an incredible, um, it's just an incredible thing. And, you know, I think families are so stressed right now and so overwhelmed by trying to manage their children's education and, and then determining whether they can continue to take part in their workforce. Um, and, and having the responsibilities of financial and 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 all of the worries and health. Um, so, you know, it was really important during this time that, as a as a family, um, myself, to provide things that I would see as a benefit because our time is very limited. And so, I'm grateful to BMC and to the Department of Mental Health because they've allowed Pin. Um, to create services that meet families' needs. And, I mean, that's been throughout the years, not just during the pandemic. It's very difficult to provide services for families right now because we are so isolated and there's such limited face-to-face interaction. And it's really important that families feel connected now more than ever. And so we've just used the telephone and Zoom um, to try to recreate as much as we can uh, the support and encouragement that families need right now. Um, 
there's definitely a need for financial support as well. And I think that goes across the board, too. And it's very hard to find resources for families. And, you know, I'm concerned about that in the coming months as well. So it, it, it has been a great challenge. And, and I think it's just flexibility and trying to, to see what the need is and how you can creatively problem solve around it. Two of the most dreaded words for parents now are remote learning. <laughs> and, um, yes. you know, you see headlines such as New York City decides to go to remote learning. And for, you know, people on the outside that aren't parents, you know, they hear that and they're just kind of headlines. But when you think about the effect that it has on individuals, the stress that it puts on people, uh, a child's education for most parents is right up there with the most important things for their child. And now they bear responsibility, if you have young kids or older kids even, to try to um, make sure that that's working out in its best possible way. And for many individuals, then that's their priority, and then trying to figure out how to get through work. And um, and for many individuals, if you're an hourly worker or if you are um, you know, looking for work on a continuous basis, uh, that's a major challenge. And there's so many individuals out there that are in the quote-unquote gig economy at this point where you are you work from job to job. You have to pitch to get your job. And um, it's been a remarkably challenging time period for uh, parents and working families uh, that I think has really gone understated um, the difficulty that working families have had to go through during this time period, Peter. No question about it. And, uh, and you know, it, we all lived in, we're, we're living in this constrained optimization environment right now. And, you know, this whole business about school, we just don't know what the answers are. And we're gathering information as we go along. If you look at Europe, Europe closed down two weeks ago, except for the schools, interestingly enough, and they're actually s- flattening the curve which is interesting. Um, and so there's all sorts of debate for it. I don't think there's a right answer, but I couldn't agree with you more. that This um, pandemic has not been an equal opportunity destroyer. It has uh, settled in places where we knew that there were already fallibilities and vulnerabilities. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that. We shouldn't forget that the income gap that exists in this country has really um, set a fertile ground for an unequal distribution of misery with this pandemic. Now, I think that's a really good point. We'll get your take on that, Heather, before we have to, to go. But it hasn't been equal opportunity, but it has had opportunity for everyone. And everyone has suffered in some way. And that's why this has had the effect that it has, has had and has been probably the most seismic event that uh, Americans have faced, in my view, since the Civil War in that uh, it is something that affects all individuals to some extent. For a senior who is isolated, they have become more isolated. Mm -hmm. For a family, it is the pressures of having to do all these things at once. Really, only Jeff Bezos has done well as a result of this. Um, In Walmart. In Walmart. That is about (laughs) it. Uh, Everyone else has suffered to uh, some degree, Heather. Yeah, I think that's so true. Everyone has suffered. But I do think um, that families who have children with special educational needs yes. that are moderate um, are suffering the most. And it's going to be, it, it, the concern is that it's going to create a gap when kids do go back to school because there's a lack of supports and services for children that um, are not being serviced in a, in a substantially separate classroom in a school. 
it, those kids are in school, but it's the kids that need reading support mm-hmm. or the, the child that needs a one-to-one to help them stay focused because they're struggling to, you know, stay focused on their work. And those parents are trying to work, and their kids are sometimes with grandparents who don't know how to operate, um, you know, Zoom, or they're alone, and there's no one supporting them. And so there's a huge disparity for for children that are just kind of right at that um, they were just making it before. Those kids are plummeting. Um, There's a lot of school refusal because children can't access things on Zoom. Um, Their disabilities cause too much frustration or overwhelm uh, being on a video and they can't, they can't function, they can't participate. And so that is a real concern. And it's a real concern not only for right now because schools are struggling to provide services that are helpful. You know, there's just, you can't, they need in-person services, but they can't provide it. And parents can't give it because they're working. And so uh, the concern will be not only just right now, but in the future when school goes back, in the same grade, you're going to have kids in completely different levels. And the teacher is going to be, you know, have to teach to, to all 24 of those children. And it's, it's going to be an incredible amount of work for teachers um, that probably already didn't have the resources that they needed to be successful. Yeah, the, kindig- yeah, the kindergartner to the second grader, particularly the moderate learning disability, um, it, that is the child that I worry about most in this time period where you're learning to read, where you're learning to write, when you're learning um, math. And those are things that can't really be taught remotely. And it requires a tremendous amount of patience as I I have a child in this age group um, on the parents' part to teach. um, But you're not a teacher. uh, And that age group is one I worry about obviously across the country the kindergartner to second grader where they're learning the fundamental skills that they need to be successful yeah and I suppose I'd like to finish on an optimistic note and and I really mean this that I think this pandemic has pulled back the curtain on a lot of the inequities that exist Mm -hmm. and perhaps shown a light on the importance that we need to involve and include everybody in in our in our wealth, um, and it's certainly done that. It certainly showed us that we need to invest much more in everybody, as as opposed to concentrating that wealth in in you know a, a few places. And and that, I think that would be my optimistic look on the future. And having read the Globe yesterday, I'm optimistic that the vaccine is coming out, and that we by March we're looking to turn the corner. And so there there is hope, and there's always hope, Heather, when Pin is around and supporting people. And I just want to thank you for everything you do. I want to thank you for coming on the show and being so eloquent. Um, but just a shout out to a wonderful program and to yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful day. This is Heather Hogan joining us here on Bamsey's Humanity First podcast. I am Chris Ryan for Peter Evers. Have a great rest of the day, everybody.